You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. Mark chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 20. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered to them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. In the book of Revelation, chapter 10, uh, the apostle John is given a scroll in this vision that he sees. Uh, He's given a scroll from an angel uh, that contains in it Uh, the word of the Lord. And he's told to do something that's pretty weird. Uh, He's supposed to eat this scroll. And he's warned that the taste of it is going to simultaneously be sweet to his lips, but also sour to his stomach. Now, obviously, John, again, wasn't literally scarfing down any scrolls uh, like you'd scarf down some pizza. Uh, This language here is symbolic, but it's a very helpful metaphor to remind you that God's words and and the message of his gospel is both bitter and sweet. Uh, The pastor, Tim Keller, put it this way. Uh, He said uh, that the gospel is this. 
We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Gospel shows you that you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dare believed, yet more loved and accepted by Christ than you ever dared hope. There is good news in the message of Jesus Christ. Uh, It is sweeter and more wonderful than honey could ever be. But to get to that good news, you have to confront the bitter realities of your own flaws and sin. Uh, You can't have one without the other. And we're going to see that in Jesus's encounter with Pontius Pilate. Uh, many, in this, many people see this text as a story showing Jesus standing on trial before Pilate, but in many ways it's actually just the opposite. Uh, you know, there's many ways that, that Pilate here is actually standing on trial before Jesus. Uh, he no doubt knew of Jesus's ministry. Uh, he had heard of all of this commotion that Jesus had been causing around Jerusalem this last week. Uh, but this is now Pilate's uh, first opportunity to finally encounter Jesus face to face and to hear the message that this Messiah is proclaiming. But at this trial, he's not just making a decision about the fate of Jesus. Uh, The fate of Pilate's own faith is also being decided. And whether or not to accept or reject uh, the teachings of this rogue rabbi. And Pilate offers you um, a great outsider's perspective on the gospel Uh, And that bitter and sobering truth uh, that you are often confronted with when you first encounter the gospel. Uh, But later in this trial, we'll we'll also see another individual uh, by the name of Barabbas. And he offers you a completely different perspective. Uh, An insider's look at the gospel showing you the sweet, honey-like taste of a life that has been free uh, by Christ, a life who has been set free uh, because of Jesus. So we'll look at this story from the perspectives of both Pilate and Barabbas, uh, and there are three lessons that each of them can teach you about the gospel. Uh, Three lessons from Pilate, uh, three lessons from Barabbas, So I will let you decide on the car ride home whether this was a two-point sermon or a six-point sermon. Uh, But either way, I promise to get you out on time for lunch. Uh, But let's start by looking at Pilate as he is confronted with the truth of the gospel uh, for the first time at Jesus's trial. And you'll see that the truth of the gospel is unavoidable, unpopular, and universally condemning. First, it's unavoidable. Uh, Pilate didn't want uh, to have to deal with Jesus. Uh, He had enough problems already without adding a divisive religious leader into the mix. Uh, As a general rule, Pilate didn't usually even live in Jerusalem. 
Uh, he typically lived on the Mediterranean coast about 60 miles away. Uh, but during major holidays when Jerusalem was filled with an influx of pilgrims, uh, Pilate and a, a large con- uh, contingent of Roman guards would often occupy the city in order to keep the peace. Because feast days like Passover were often occasions where political tensions ran high uh, and where there were serious chances of rioting. So just the fact that Pilate is even in town shows you just how much was going on in Jerusalem and how busy Pilate already was. I mean, he was trying to keep a volatile city uh, that didn't particularly like having been conquered by the Romans. Uh, he was trying to keep this city intact. He was trying to keep it from falling apart. So Pilate is not someone who was like Nicodemus or the rich young ruler who sought out Jesus uh, you know, trying to find answers to some spiritual questions. Uh, Pilate didn't really want to have to deal with Jesus at all, uh, but he wasn't given the choice. Jesus was bound by the religious leaders and just dropped off at his door. Uh, if you read this story uh, from the account of of Luke in his gospel, you see that Pilate even tried to pass the buck by sending Jesus on over to Herod. Uh, as soon as he found out that Jesus was a Galilean, he said, oh, that's Herod's jurisdiction. You should send him over there. And he wanted to make Jesus someone else's problem. Uh, but Herod didn't want to have to deal with Jesus either. So he just sent him right back. And at some point in your life, just like Pilate, you too will have to come to terms with what you believe about Jesus and his gospel. You can only push away that decision for so long. Because the gospel isn't just for those who are already religiously minded. It's not just for those who are already searching for spiritual answers. Uh, everyone is going to have to get off the fence post at some point and make a decision about what they believe. Sometimes those experiences will resemble Nicodemus who came to Jesus. And sometimes it'll look like Pilate where Jesus was brought to him. Sometimes you'll open up your Bible or you'll come to church because you have been searching for and looking for the truth. While other times you weren't searching at all. You were just busy with life when tragedy or difficult circumstances came your way and forced you to think about the realities of life and death and God and eternity. Sometimes you go looking for Jesus, and sometimes he just shows up at your door. But however it happens, being confronted with the truth of the gospel is unavoidable. You can only push away the decision for so long. Eventually, you must decide. Because continually just choosing to avoid a decision, in the end, will actually be a decision in and of itself. If you're always refusing to decide what you believe about 
Jesus that indecision will actually be your rejection of Jesus. So being confronted with the truth of the gospel, it's unavoidable. Um, It's also unpopular. Jesus wasn't brought before Pilate with his hands bound together because he had just won a popularity contest. Jesus accomplished something that was incredibly difficult to do in his day. He managed to simultaneously tick off the entire religious political spectrum of the first century. Like Democrats and Republicans today, the Pharisees and the Sadducees could never agree on anything, yet they unanimously agreed on the need to have Jesus killed. Enough so that they were willing to do whatever it took to make it happen. Notice in these opening verses uh, that the charge against Jesus has already been changed. At the trial the night before, he was accused of blasphemy, of speaking profanely or sacrilegiously about God. Uh, But Rome couldn't care less uh, whether or not Jesus had blasphemed. Uh, There's no way Pilate would have had Jesus executed for just calling himself God. So all of the Sadducees and the Pharisees who couldn't agree on anything agreed to come up with a crime they knew the Romans would take seriously. Uh, The Jews didn't have the authority to execute a criminal uh, on their own. Uh, Generally speaking, only the Romans were permitted uh, to execute uh, criminals, especially in in high-profile cases like Jesus. So before Pontius Pilate, the religious leaders came up with a new crime, accusing him of treason. Wasn't a big deal to the Romans if Jesus called himself God, but if he saw himself as a king, that was a different story. If he was the king of the Jews, he might stir up a Jewish rebellion against the Roman Empire. So so Jesus is in this situation because of the unpopular nature of who he was and the message that he came to preach. He's generated such controversy that the Jewish religious leaders are working with a pagan governor to have him put to death. But in contrast to Jesus's unpopularity, look to see what is motivating Pilate. I mean, we do read that Pilate was amazed, perhaps even amused by Jesus when he first met him. Uh, but not enough to ultimately alter how Pilate handles Jesus's trial. Uh, He's fascinated by Jesus, but not enough for that fascination to lead to any genuine faith or to, to be that driving force behind any of Pilate's decisions. Uh, Instead, as you read in verse 15, he is far more concerned with satisfying the crowds. That's ultimately the basis upon which Pilate decides to have Jesus crucified, just to satisfy the crowd. This text shows you that there are two ways to live your life. 
It first shows you that if Jesus was unpopular because of that gospel he proclaimed, uh, then you shouldn't expect anything to be different for you if you are one of his followers. But it also shows you that there is something even more dangerous than merely being unpopular in the eyes of the larger culture. What's worse than being unpopular, being an unpopular outcast like Christ, what's worse is being enslaved to always trying to satisfy the crowd. Pilate shows you that always trying to satisfy the crowd is one of the most dangerous ways you can live your life. Uh, The pastor, Kevin uh, DeYoung, uh, he put it this way, saying, You should always be weary if everyone hates you or if everyone loves you. You should always be weary if everyone hates you or if everyone loves you. Uh, If everyone around you hates you, then there's probably a reason for it. The problem is probably you. But you should also be equally leery if not a single person dislikes you either. If no one can take any issue with anything that you have said or done, that should be a red alert as well. And it's probably a sign that the only real conviction you have is a conviction to try and please everyone around you. There's a sad irony to the story of Pilate. The governor's only concern was his own reputation and legacy and to satisfy these crowds, but but his only legacy now is for being an accomplice to the murder of the Messiah. That's all history remembers Pilate for now. He chose to live his life trying to satisfy the crowds, and for the rest of his life, he had to deal with the guilt of shedding innocent blood. Choosing to align your life with Jesus and with his gospel, it may make you unpopular, but but that reality is far less dangerous than the alternative, especially if Pontius Pilate is any indication So being confronted with the truth of the gospel, uh, it's unavoidable, it's unpopular, but it is also universally condemning. Unavoidable, unpopular, and it's universally condemning. In this story, Jesus is the one on trial, uh, but let me ask you, who is actually guilty? I'll give you a clue. If their name is not Jesus, then they are guilty. The the religious leaders who brought Jesus to trial in the first place are guilty. Uh, They are the ones who are supposed to be the living embodiments of morality and holiness, yet they are manipulating the crowds so as to condemn the Son of God to death. Pontius Pilate is guilty. Matthew's account says that he washed his hands in front of the crowds so as to say that he was innocent of this man's blood. 
But even if he washed those hands a thousand times, they would be stained with just as much guilt. The crowds are guilty. You have the same men and women who were hailing Jesus as a king just a week prior as he rode into Jerusalem. Now they're already crying out for his crucifixion. Even Barabbas, who we'll talk about more in just a moment, even he was rightfully arrested because he was guilty of crimes involving insurrection. No one is innocent in this story except for the one who will ultimately be convicted as guilty. Though Jesus is about to shed his blood for you and I, he's the only one who is innocent and without any blood on his hands. And if this story was just about an innocent man, the Romans wrongly accused, We'd call this story a tragedy. Or if it was just about the guilt of those complicit in condemning Christ to die, we'd call it a story of treason against a holy God. But this story is more than simply one of tragedy or treason. Ultimately, it's a story of triumph that was birthed from this tragedy despite humanity's treason against God. It is a story of treason, it is a story of tragedy, but ultimately it's a story of triumph that came from this tragedy despite humanity's treason. And you have to have all three puzzle pieces in order to understand the story of the gospel. We often like to speak about Jesus's triumph over the grave, but you can't talk about his victory over death without first talking about his death. And likewise, you can't talk about his death without talking about why that death was necessary and so important. The good news of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection Uh, It should bring a smile on your face, but but it's also appropriate for it first to be the cause of some sorrow and some shed tears before that smile arrives. If you can first dwell deeply on, on the bitter reality of your sin and depravity, it will help you better to delight in that sweetness of salvation. You will rejoice all the more in your salvation when you can understand all the better uh, what you were actually saved from. Jesus wants to use his gospel to build each and every one of you up, but he first must tear you down a little in order to begin with a better foundation. So so being confronted with the truths of the gospel is a universally condemning experience. You realize that we have all been complicit in our own way of sending Jesus to the cross. So before you can celebrate that triumph of the resurrection, you need to recognize the tragic reality of your sin that first sent him to his death. So we've talked about Pilate, 
to see what it looks like to be confronted with the truth of the gospel. Uh, But let's just spend the rest of our time taking a moment to look at Barabbas to see the outcome of the gospel. Pilate shows you uh, an outsider perspective on what it looks like to first encounter Jesus. Uh, But Barabbas will show you an inside perspective of what it looks like to be freed by Jesus. And the outcome and the effects of the gospel on Barabbas are unexpected, unexplainable, and in some ways even unfair. First, it's unexpected. The introduction of Barabbas into this story is sort of like a surprise plot twist. Uh, If you had never read these verses before, you would have thought that they would conclude with Pilate taking the initiative to either sentence Jesus to death or to set him free. But instead, he leaves that decision up to the crowds. He places a man who had rightfully been convicted of insurrection next to Jesus, and he lets the crowds decide who should go free. And nowhere in Mark's gospel have we yet been introduced to Barabbas. He only appears here during Jesus's trial. So we know very little about him except for two things, his crime and his name. We're told that he was an insurrectionist and a convicted murderer. He apparently took part in some kind of rebellion against the Roman Empire. And in the midst of that rebellion, others were killed at his hands. So that's his crime. And the only other tidbit of information that we have is his name, Barabbas which doesn't sound very significant to the English-speaking world. But if you spoke Aramaic, this name would be cause for a bit of a pause. Because Barabbas in Arabic means son of the father. There are also a number of Greek manuscripts that we have, as well as a very early tradition from the church that actually indicate that Barabbas's full name wasn't just son of the father. It was actually Jesus, son of the father. Uh, Jesus was a very, very common first century name. So it may well have been that both of these men standing before Pilate and this crowd actually had the same name. So so it's a bit unexpected that you see these two men who are polar opposites of one another, yet they share so many similarities. Both are sons of the father. Both are Jewish men uh, that the Romans wanted to put to death. Uh, Both are revolutionaries of sorts, albeit one political, the other spiritual So even though one is just a petty criminal and the other is God incarnate, surprisingly, they have more in common than you might think. But even more unexpectedly, the crowds demand the release of this criminal and not Christ. They want the son of the father, who is the political revolutionary, to go free 
and the Son of God the Father to be crucified instead. And you have to wonder, as you read this, if Barabbas ever came to understand the significance of the sacrifice of this other man who bore the same name. Did he ever realize that his unexpected good luck that day when he was released came with such a hefty price tag? When Barabbas was set free, did he run away without ever looking back? Or did he ever stop to ponder about this other Jesus, the Son of God the Father? Was he ever thankful though maybe also a little bit saddened that the cost of his life was the life of this other man. When you think about it, Christianity is is the most wonderfully unexpected kind of religion. One that is different from every other religion or uh, different from any other kind of worldview. Almost Every other faith in the world operates on the principle that if you are a good person in this life, you will be rewarded accordingly in the life to come. Islam, Hinduism, uh, every other religion, they operate under that same basic premise. Good people who live good lives will be rewarded with a good life in the life to come. But what separates Christianity from any other religious system or worldview is the reality that the good news that we call the gospel isn't just for those who are already good. It is good news also for the Barabbases of the world who have already failed miserably at living the life that God has called you to live. And that's the greatest good news, because the reality is that there really aren't any good people in this world, at least not truly good. If there were, then maybe other religious systems would work for them. But since we are all woefully fallen and broken people, we we need a religion for the, not just for those who are already good, but for those like everybody else, like you and I and the Barabbases of the world, where just like Barabbas, you too get to bear the name of the one who died in your place. Uh, though you and Christ may, may seem like you have nothing or, or very little in common, if you submit to him, you get to bear that title of being called a Christian. In Greek, Christian literally just means little Christ. You, you were guilty and he was innocent, yet you still get to walk away free. And you get to bear his name. And that makes the gospel the most unexpected yet marvelous mystery that you would do well to ponder on for the rest of your life and for eternity to come. But but not only is the outcome of the gospel one that is unexpected, 
Unless you've experienced it and encountered it firsthand, it's also unexplainable. That's the second lesson from Barabbas. I mean, how, how do you think? How do you think he explained everything that has happened to him this day to his family and his friends when he finally got back home? That the same family that thought that they would never see him again because he had been caught and convicted and he should have been crucified for the crimes he had committed against the Romans. I mean, the Romans had practically perfected the art of torture. They were known for being ruthless against those who went up against them. So, so I can only imagine Barabbas just being absolutely tongue-tied as he tried to stumble through an explanation of how this Roman governor suddenly just let him go free. I mean, he had been caught red-handed in an attempt to overthrow the Romans, and he had murdered at least one of those Romans in cold blood. Yet despite all of that, this Roman official just acquitted him of all of those crimes just because an innocent rabbi was willing to take his place. Unless you were at that trial and you saw Barabbas go free with your own eyes, this would have been a difficult story to believe. Jesus was the one who was innocent. Barabbas was the one who had already been proven guilty. Yet the innocent one gets arrested and the guilty goes away free. Barabbas' story is about as mysterious and unexplainable as Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul writes, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked following the course of this world. And you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. Sometimes saying, but God is the only answer you can give to explain what would otherwise be unexplainable. Barabbas was a convicted criminal but God took his place so that he might be free. You were dead in the trespasses of your sin, but God brought you back to life. Apart from simply saying, but God, there is no adequate way to ever explain how lives can find such freedom from bondage and sin through Jesus and his gospel. So Barabbas shows you the outcome of the gospel is unexpected. It's unexplainable. Lastly, it's also unfair. Christianity is centered around a gospel that is unfair. Let me read the final verses of this text to show you what I mean. Uh, after Barabbas is set free, this is what we're told happens to Jesus. 
The soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and they put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. The king who created the universe came to the earth to be with his subjects. And this is how he was treated. Not with a coronation befitting of his kingly status, but rather a mock ceremony intended to be a de-coronation. This is an anti-coronation. Jesus is given a crown and a cloak like a king, but then that robe is stripped from him and he is beaten with what was intended to be his scepter. The Romans are mockingly trying to rob Jesus of his royalty. Jesus' body was beaten, was bruised. Soon it will be broken on the cross, all while, while Barabbas was set free. And so that those who submit their lives to Christ now might be set free as well. If ever there was a single moment that could be described as utterly unfair, it would be this treatment of Jesus. And it shows you that Christianity is centered around a gospel that is not fair, but for that you should be forever grateful. Because it is unfair, but it is unfair in your favor. The actions of the religious leaders here were underhanded. Uh, This trial was undeserved. And the outcome of it, as we can see, was unjust. And the Lord would have been within his sovereign rights to have instantly condemned everyone around Jesus. From the guards to the crowds to everyone in between, all could have been rightfully sentenced to death. In fact, the Lord would have been perfectly justified in condemning all of humanity until the world was left empty except for Jesus. But instead, God the Father let the world unfairly treat his son and send him to the cross. So that through his death, burial, and resurrection, that unfairness Jesus experienced might turn out to be in your favor. So that you could be rescued and so that your relationship with God could be restored. The gospel is not at all fair, but it is unfair in your favor. And that is something that that you should be forever thankful for. The gospel may confront you sometimes with the bitter reality of of your sin and, and flaws, just like it did with Pilate. But if you let it, there is a sweetness beyond compare that you will experience just like Barabbas. 
like the vision John experienced in Revelation, the truths of Jesus by necessity may be sour to the stomach, but they are oh so sweet to the soul. So may we remember that as we go throughout our week. Let me pray. Father, thank you for just allowing your son to endure through the unfair treatment that he experienced while on earth. Uh, Because only by those stripes that he suffered uh, may we ever be healed. So so I pray that that however we are confronted with the truths of the gospel, whether we we be like Nicodemus that seeks you out or Pilate, uh, where you just show up at our door, however it happens when we are confronted with your truth, I pray that we would not simply wash our hands and simply walk away. Rather, may we realize the power it has to set us free like Barabbas. I ask all of this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.